One thing I noted tonight, I didn't get a chance to tell uh, Sandy. There she is. I did talk to George Meisinger last week. He's been on the prayer list for some time because he has had an undiagnosed illness. Well, they they finally figured out what it was, that he had a blood clot, a long blood clot, he said, almost the length of his thigh, and that a little bit of that had broken off and gotten into his lung. I think he called it a pulmonary edema. That's right, isn't it? And uh, what? Thrombosis. And that he's doing quite well now. He's on uh, Coumadin and some other things. And and uh, that was very much uh, something that could have uh, been life-threatening, but it's obviously not the Lord's timing right now for him. So he sounded better than I've heard him in six months. So uh, we can be thankful, uh, very thankful for that. The other announcement I have up here is an announcement about the uh, cookout that we're going to have on the 4th of July, and we'll eat about 4.30 in the afternoon and then have Bible class at 6 o'clock, child care provided during Bible class that night, and we'll provide the uh, grilled burgers and hot dogs and everything, that well, whatever you want to put on them, whatever we provide for you to put on them. And there'll be a sign-up sheet to RSVP eventually. But the main reason I'm announcing it this early is because I want to make sure that those who live stream recognize that that's a Thursday. Bible class will not be at 7.30 as usual on that Thursday evening. It will be at 6 o'clock. And since no one in the United States should be working on that day, they should be able to adjust their schedules accordingly. Those outside the country, well, they're just going to have to adapt one way or the other. So... I think that's all I have for announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, we have quite a bit to try to cover this evening, interesting, thought-challenging kinds of things to do. So Holy Spirit's going to have to help us think our way through some of this, see if we can unscrew the inscrutable. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come before you in prayer. We're thankful that we have direct access to your throne of grace because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. It's complete, it's finished, and because the sin penalty is taken care of, that is no longer an issue. We have direct access uh, to your throne of grace. Father, we pray, we're thankful for the good news on George Meisinger. We pray for others in the congregation who are... Uh, facing challenges due to cancer, going through treatments for cancer. We pray for their health, for their healing, for their recovery. And, Father, above all, we pray that as a congregation we might continue to um, uh, 
just encourage them and strengthen them as they go through their challenges. Pray for us as we study your word this, this evening that we might be able to focus and concentrate and that you'll help us to understand these things and have a greater understanding of your grace and how we as believers can exhibit that grace toward others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I know the other announcement that I was going to make is that last, uh, I think it was last uh, Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, Jay Christopher, whose wife Barbara comes to this uh, church, uh, went to be with the Lord, and his memorial service will be on Tuesday, I believe it's Tuesday, maybe it's Monday, June the 10th. It's June the 10th. I'm not sure if that's a Monday. I think it is a Monday. June the 10th at Baraka Church, and I'm not sure of the time. But uh, for those of you interested in going, it's not immediate. It's still a couple of weeks away, so it's on June the, June the 10th. All right, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and we've got a rather interesting um, a conundrum that is gradually being introduced by Luke uh, at this point. And I think that it's important for us to take some time and kind of trace out some of this because it becomes some of these issues will become a little more apparent as we work our way through Acts. And as I've been thinking about this, especially, and there's some overlap with where we're going on Thursday night, and so I, I wanted to address this a little bit more. I think it's, uh, I think it's an important issue. Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, as we wrapped up last week, we start into the second missionary journey. There are three missionary journeys, and it's real easy to connect those journeys to the epistles. At the end of the first missionary journey, Paul wrote one epistle. At the end of the second missionary journey, he wrote two epistles. And at the end of the third missionary journey, he wrote three epistles. And the fourth trip is not a missionary journey, but that was when he went to Rome. And when he was in Rome, he wrote four prison epistles. So that's easy to kind of remember the organization there and the chronology. Now, when Paul went on his first missionary journey, he had as his traveling companions initially Barnabas and Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. John Mark flaked out once they left uh, uh uh, Cyprus and went to the mainland and couldn't couldn't hack it and so that led to a later problem that occurred when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on the second journey and so they uh, split up and went their separate ways that is Paul went and took Silas with him we saw that at the end of the last chapter and uh, uh, Barnabas went with with John Mark and went back to do follow-up uh, follow-up ministry on Cyprus with the churches that they had established there. So that's kind of the background. At the end of the first missionary journey, Paul wrote one epistle. What was that epistle? Galatians. That's right. Very good. It was Galatians. And Galatians deals with the issue of what is the relationship of the law to salvation. And that is exactly what we dealt with in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And we saw that there was a basic problem. We're going to review this uh, <clears throat> a lot tonight. The basic problem was that there were certain men, according to chapter 15, verse 1, certain men who came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Coming down from Judea means 
that they headed north out of coming down always means south for us, but they're in their idiom, Jerusalem is elevated, uh Antioch is a lower elevation, so you go down from Jerusalem, so they're going from Jerusalem, they go down to and they taught the brethren that in Antioch, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they are no longer teaching a grace gospel, they're teaching grace plus circumcision for salvation. Now, that teaching didn't just go to Antioch. It was permeating the area where Paul had already been. This was already infiltrating the church in uh, south uh, South central Turkey, what it was at that time, South Galatia. That was why Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians, was to straighten them out on the problem of the law. Now, when they, the Jerusalem Council met, they concluded that there was no theological reason, no doctrinal reason or basis for insisting that Gentiles uh, be circumcised, that, there was, that the law should not be a burden to Gentiles. But what are we going to tell Gentiles? How are we going to solve this social problem? And so, as I pointed out last time, we're going to have this conclusion. Now, the topic tonight is that we have to address this issue, what then is the role of circumcision and the law? What is the role of circumcision and the law? If it's not for salvation, what's it for? This is an important issue because we're, as we see, as we go through Acts, we're going to find Paul observing the law in his life, continuing to observe the law in his life. And and people, sometimes we just kind of slide over that because we read these very strong statements from Paul that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So we get this idea that the law is irrelevant. But is it? We have to address that. Um, so what's the role of circumcision in the law? And we'll just be getting through the first five verses uh, tonight. The conclusion, as I pointed out last time, on the, the letter that was sent from the leadership in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch is that um, that they, there were certain prohibitions that the Gentiles should follow. And those prohibitions were related to Jewish social customs shaped by a combination of rabbinic teaching, the Mosaic law, and our, the Noahic covenant. In other words, they were told to... Um, not eat meat sacrificed to idols, to avoid um, uh, to avoid immorality, and uh, to uh, avoid things that have been strangled or meat that have been influenced by blood. So that was all part. Some of that could be traced to the Noahic covenant, some to the Mosaic law, some aspects to rabbinic teaching. It had become part of the culture of Second Temple Judaism and part of the culture of the of the. Uh, of the Jewish people at that time. So if they were going to sit down and have fellowship, table fellowship, invite Gentiles into their home or go eat with Gentiles, this was going to be a fellowship problem, a social problem. It wasn't a theological issue. So they were told uh, just to avoid these things. The issue is really the same issue we find a number of other places in the New Testament that's the application of the law of love. Don't, it's not an issue of your, of, uh, of, of, of spirituality. It's not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue of not offending a weaker brother. Don't cause offense. 
And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we live in in a culture that is majoring on taking offense over every little thing. People get offended. Somebody says something. Somebody brings out a Bible. Everybody gets offended. But see, the reason Christians don't fight back is because Christians are taught grace. And if somebody does something, we aren't going to take offense. We're not going to seek offense. We're not going to ask. We're going to treat them in grace, which means we tend to get walked over at times. Now, as a result of this, Paul Paul affirms the same position that circumcision is not necessary or required for justification. He's going to, he, that's the same message he had in Galatians. And we'll see what happens from there. Now, we saw at the end of the last time that Paul took Silas with him, since there was a split with Barnabas over John Mark. Paul chose Silas, otherwise known by his Latin name, Silvanus, and departed and uh, was and being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. This was when he departed from Antioch. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. This would be the north, uh, northwestern part of Syria and Cilicia, which is the sort of south, central, southeastern part of, of modern Turkey, strengthening the churches. And here we have the word, uh, stereo used here, uh, or epistereo. Actually, I changed that. No, it's stereo. Epistereo here, stereo in the next verse. Um, Slipping that slide around. Okay, here's the map. I love maps. Map. There's so many geographical locations, and one of the things we'll see when we get into Luke, Luke. I mean, Acts 16 is Luke joins, will join Paul and Timothy when they reach Troas, because all of a sudden everybody pays. Everybody notes this. The the uh, uh, pronouns change from third person plural to first person plural, from they to we. And so Luke just very subtly is part of the action in different places. So we don't know exactly where Paul first met Luke, but we do know that Luke first joined the team in Troas, and that's in in, uh, in the chapter. And Luke tells about every little place Paul goes. It's a travelogue. He's he's writing about all the different locations that, that uh, Paul uh, went to, and so that's important because it gives us background for understanding the rest of the epistles. So this is just a map. We have uh, this area here going across this way. I'm not exactly sure where the border goes. Somewhere generally in this direction, south of Lake Van, is all part of modern Turkey. Here's Mount Ararat over here, and so the border between Syria, which is down here to the south, and all of these mountains here, all of these mountains are all part of the um, all part of modern Turkey. The border with Iran is just over here to the east of Mount Ararat. Here's the location of Mount Ararat. Down here is the you can barely read it because the uh, uh, it uses a green colored font with a green background. It's hard to read, but that little yellow triangle here is Mount Chudi. That's an alternate. That there was a historically uh, there was an alternate site there, of the location of Noah's Ark. Josephus mentions it. Some other ancient writers mention that because Genesis actually says that the ark landed on the mountains, plural, of Ararat, 
and not Mount Ararat itself. And so the argument is that that all of these mountains could be considered uh, the mountains of Ararat. So anyhow, this is uh, Syria, and here we have um, Antiochus on the Orontes, and this is where they're going to set out, and they're going to move uh, north and then west uh, to uh, pass Tarsus, uh, Saul's or Paul's hometown, and through the Cilician Gates, which is your pass through these mountains into into central Turkey. So then they're heading towards Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So here are the Cilician Gates. Here, this is the pass going uh, from uh, tar- the highway or uh, from Tarsus into the southern Galatian area. Not much to see there in terms of uh, uh, that which remains. Uh, this is uh, the Tell of Lystra, and it doesn't actually look a whole lot different from this Tell, which is Derby. And so that's all that's left. There hasn't been a lot of excavation into those Tells to find out a whole lot that was uh, that was there. So in Acts 16, 1 through 5, <clears throat> we read, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So they're announcing that that the, all you Gentile men, you don't have to get circumcised. So it's a follow-up. He's already written Galatians. So this is, again, a follow-up, a reaffirmation that justification is by faith alone and the law does not apply for justification or sanctification. And so then we're given another report in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. This is where stereo is used as a synonym uh, for epistereo. Epistereo, just, it's the same root. It just has a, a epistereo just, uh, that we've seen earlier just has an intensification uh, there. Now, we're introduced here to Timothy. We're introduced to Timothy. Now, Timothy's name is Timotheus in, in the Greek, which means honored, uh, honored of God. Uh, Timae is the Greek word for honor. Theos, the word for God. It means honored by God or God honored. And then uh, Paul then uh, becomes very close to Timothy. As we read through the New Testament epistles, uh, Timothy is mentioned by name by Paul 17 times in his epistles, more than anybody else. So that tells us that, that uh, something of the close relationship of Paul to Timothy. Timothy uh, travels with him on his second missionary journey, on his third missionary journey. He's going to be with him in Rome. And Paul is then going to write two uh, epistles to Timothy. First Timothy is written during his first imprisonment in Rome. 
and Second Timothy during his second imprisonment in Rome, and he is going to give guidance and direction to Timothy as a young man. Now, Second Timothy was written in 65. This is this is about 50. This is 15 years before Second Timothy. Timothy at this stage is probably between 20 and 25, as we'll see, because he's referred to as a young man. And in that culture, you were young until you were about 40, and at 40 you became mature. You became an elder, but you were a young man up to the age of 40. So uh, Timothy is uh, going to be given guidance as a, as a young pastor by uh, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul led Timothy to salvation on the first missionary journey. On that first missionary journey, when Paul and uh, Barnabas first went through Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, that would have been the time that Paul first met Timothy and his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. This is mentioned in 2 Timothy 1.5. And he, uh, it was Paul that introduced them and helped them to understand that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that had been promised and prophesied from the Old Testament. And therefore, it was necessary for Jew- Jews, even though um, they had the law and everything else, they had to trust now in Jesus as the Messiah and to believe in him. And this was a godly family. Now, I, I don't, I, I've had some people ask me this question, and I don't know the answer, and I don't want to get wrapped around the axle. But there were a lot of Old Testament believers, and we must think that, that Lois and Eunice and Timothy were probably, uh, Old Testament believers because we know from 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14, that they brought Timothy up on the Old Testament scriptures and taught him the scriptures. And they were very likely Old Testament saints. But now there's new revelation given to them that Jesus uh, of Nazareth is the Messiah and that they need to believe in him for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so uh, the, the New Testament really doesn't address this issue, but I don't think that if anyone, any, anyone who was an Old Testament believer would have rejected the gospel. They were already regenerate in an Old Testament sense, and when they heard the gospel, they would have become saved. But it is, so it is at th- that time that, uh, Eunice and Lois and Timothy understand that the gospel, the gospel of the good news related to Jesus Christ. Now, because of Paul's closeness to Timothy and because he led him to the Lord and because he mentored him throughout his, his ministry, Paul would refer to Timothy by endearing terms such as my son in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18. But there's a little problem with Timothy in his background. Timothy is of a uh, is the offspring of a mixed marriage. His mother is Jewish, and his father was Gentile. So this presented a, a little bit of a problem because his father, as a Greek, did not want his son to be circumcised. The Greeks, even to this day, and I know Greeks, some Greeks, and they hold this belief that circumcision is mutilation. And they are strongly against it. This has been part of Greek culture for 2,000 years. 
and they are against against circumcision. So his father did not want his son circumcised. But according to the the rabbinical view of how to determine whether one is Jewish, Jewishness was determined by the mother. If the mother if the mom's Jewish, then the children are Jewish. According to it seems according to biblical genealogy, uh, it seems that Jewishness is passed on through the male because that's the focal point in those genealogies. Now that's the argument that I've usually heard presented. However, I think that that probably both are true. And biblically, it doesn't really address that. Uh, the lineage is passed on from father through the father because that's how that's the head of the home. I don't think the genealogies can prove that Jewishness was determined by uh, by the mother because you have examples for for example in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Christ where you have Ruth included in the in the uh, genealogy and she was a Gentile Rahab's included in the genealogy and she's a Gentile so if uh, they were Gentiles. Uh, then that would indicate that the uh, offspring were Gentiles, unless, of course, they uh, they convert. And in that case, then you get into other issues. And this is why rabbinical law gets so um, uh, intricate, is because it has to deal with all these kinds of situations. So as f- bottom line for us is that as far as Paul was concerned, Timothy is Jewish. And therefore, if Timothy as a Jew is going to go with Paul and follow the principle of to the Jew first and also to the Greek, then Timothy, in order to have a, a platform for ministry among Jews who in some case know some cases at least locally know who he is and know that he is of a Greek father and that he has not been circumcised, I mean that was everybody knew that. Um that meant Timothy was going to have to be circumcised. Now, this raises an interesting question for us because if if, Timi- if Timothy if circumcision is no longer spiritually significant, then why does Paul have Timothy get circumcised? And this plays into another important thing because as we look at the New Testament and we talk about the law, that the law is no no longer relevant. Why is it that later on we find Tim, uh, we find Paul shaving his head, taking a vow, going to the temple, and is this wrong, or does this is are we just looking at this only from a very narrow grid in terms of of theological correctness and ignoring uh, ethnic and cultural issues? And I think that's the that's the real issue here is that as as Jews with a cultural heritage and with the temple still in operation, there were certain things that they still did culturally, but Paul understands that they don't have a spiritual significance other than as a uh, reminder of the past and as a visual aid of spiritual truth that has been fulfilled, uh, been fulfilled in Christ. So we need to look at this a little bit more, um, uh, in a little bit more uh, d- detail. Now, uh, remember that uh, in Second Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, both uh, the mother and the uh, father had been um, uh, trained in the Word, 
I mean, both the mother and grandmother had been tra- had trained Timothy in the Word, so he knows the Word. He's memorized Scripture, probably. That was the uh, standard operating procedure among uh, Jewish children. They memorized incredible amounts of, of Scripture. And I think this is so important. Those of you who have kids or if you've got grandkids that you can influence in this way is to have them start memorizing things as early as possible. The more you can get memorized and into their heads early on, the better it is for them. It's great training. Uh, I have heard for years and uh, about the importance of Bible memory, and I think it, it is incredible. I, I think we've lost this in churches today. As much as I emphasize this, I don't know if anybody ever listens to me. I'm very uh, proud of some, uh, some uh, folks who are uh, not in the church, who are uh, listeners at a distance, who have a, have a daughter and granddaughter who has been memorizing a lot of Scripture, just memorized the 19th Psalm, did a great job. This is very important. It's great skill training. Heard a great story on the last trip to Israel. Some of you don't know this. Some of you do, that one of my new friends on the Israel trip was a man by the name of Raphael Cruz, who's very proud of his son, who's the newest senator, uh, U.S. senator from Texas by the name of Ted Cruz. And Raphael was telling me a story about Ted that I didn't know, and I don't think it's made the rounds, but um, when Ted was an eighth grade, he was reading, um, he was reading uh, Milton Friedman, who's a noted economist, University of Chicago. He was reading uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek. He was reading von Mises and, and was really uh, Adam Smith, all the great uh, free enterprise capitalist writers, uh, eighth grade. And was really getting into this. So, uh, Raphael introduced him to an organization in Houston, and I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the organization, but part of their thing is to, uh, identify and develop talent like this, uh, in the field of economics. And so, when Ted became a, a ninth grader, uh, he was invited to participate in a debate team with this uh, economics organization. And that um, Ted had uh, had been in debate since the seventh grade. Isn't that fabulous? You got to train them young. And so part of the responsibility of these kids who are on this debate team was that they had to memorize the entire U.S. Constitution. And they would uh, go to uh, Rotary Club, Lions Club, different types of uh, community organizations like that. And they would go in, and when people would start to come in for the evening, these five kids would be up at, they would bring in these big um, flip, char- flip chart type tablets, huge tablets up that they'd have on five easels, and each one would be up there writing out the U.S. Constitution from memory. And about the time everybody got there and everybody finished eating and they were ready for the program and the debate, the kids would have finished writing out the entire U.S. Constitution from memory. And they did this kind of thing eight or ten times every year, and Ted did that all four years till he graduated from high school. So I, I'm just proud to know that Texas has a U.S. senator that knows the U.S. Constitution from memory. And along with that, because of his father's emphasis on the word, he has memorized a lot of scripture. And I have heard this 
from a number of my Jewish friends. In fact, I, uh, I've talked to two different individuals who took Ted Cruz to Israel back in November and in December as part of the same I, AIEF, uh, the American Israel Education Foundation group that, that uh, sponsored my uh, recent trip to Israel as well. And they, they were very impressed with how much scripture Ted Cruz knew and just quoted, quoted from memory. So that is a, a wonderful thing to know about your, your U.S. Senate, senator. But it's important to memorize that scripture. Arnold Fruchtenbaum tells the story that, uh, several generations back in his family, back in the 1700s, uh, 1600s, 1700s, there were men who were, uh, scribes in his family who were, whose responsibility it was to uh, copy and make copies of the Torah uh, for synagogues. And they would, as, a, as young men, they would have to have the entire Torah memorized uh, by the time they were uh, 12 years old and have the rest of the, uh, have the rest of the Old Testament memorized uh, a little bit later on, and in order to pass the test so that they would could uh, qualify as a scribe, they would be given a codex of the Hebrew text, and everything is just it was handwritten, but it's an exact duplicate, and they would drive a nail through it, and then ask the question on page seventy five what word does the nail intersect? And they would have to tell you what the word was and what the letter was from the position of the nail on the page. We don't have respect for the Bible. They have respect for the Bible. They have respect for the Word of God. We don't memorize it. We have no respect for the Word of God. But that's the Jewish tradition is that that they had respect for the Word of God so that they memorized it verbatim. And they had to know it that well before they could officially be a scribe. This is why there are very few scribal errors in the Old Testament. That's how you tell whether or not you've got an accurate copy. You know what the first word on the page is, what the last word on the page is, what the middle word on each sentence is supposed to be, first word, last word of each sentence, so you can spot check each page to make sure it is it is accurate. So Timothy would have been trained that way. He would have known the Old Testament uh, from from memory, so now that he is um, uh, he is a, an adult, he's shown great uh, promise, and he is well spoken of by the brethren. Now, this term, the brethren, doesn't refer in context to Jewish brethren; it refers to those who are also members of the body of Christ. So, it's a reference to Christians. And Timothy, as a young man, as a 20 to 25-year-old, because of his prior knowledge of the Scripture and because of his uh, spiritual growth and maturity during this time, has gained a very positive reputation among the Christians in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul recognizes his ability and wants him to go with him. But in order to do that, he has to circumcise him. So this raises the question, what's going on with the circumcision here? If the law no longer mattered, then why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? Now, I'm, I'm saying this a certain way because it's easy to say, well, the law no longer matters. No longer matters for what? See, I didn't specify that. 
And I think that's important. It did matter. There was the law, Paul says in Romans 7, is good and righteous and holy. It's just not, it's just not good, it's just not profitable for justification or sanctification. But it's not bad. It's not evil. Uh, the other question that I'm asking is if Jewishness is no longer relevant, why does it matter? You see, somehow in er- the early church and down through the centuries, we've gotten this idea that because we're in the church age, if you're Jewish and you get saved, your ethnicity is irrelevant. Irrelevant for what? That's what we need to ask. It's not absolutely irrelevant. It's irrelevant in terms of justification or sanctification. It's not totally irrelevant. Paul is very clear on this, and we need we also need to be very clear on this because the fact that somebody is ethnically Jewish is still significant. That's why Paul is having Timothy circumcised, and we need to understand this. This is why there are certain things that Paul does in Acts that some people have thought, well, Paul must have been out of fellowship for doing that. Well, either because their only other option is that that Paul must be absolutely out of his mind because one day he's teaching the gospel of grace and the law is no longer relevant. The next day he's taking a vow and shaving his head. Well, maybe there's a third option, and the third option has to do with the fact that Paul is doing something that is still legitimate because the temple hasn't been destroyed yet, He's not doing it because it's going to get him justified or it's going to get him sanctified, but he's doing it out of respect for his ethnic cultural background and for the heritage of the Old Testament. And we'll see this as we go through this study uh, this evening. So I'm going to look at the doctrine of circumcision. First of all, circumcision did not begin with Avram, in Genesis chapter 17, it doesn't. There were other cultures that practiced circumcision, not a lot, but there was. So it's not historically unique to the Jews, but it becomes historically significant and doctrinally or theologically significant for the Jews. God, second point: God first required circumcision of Abraham of Avram in Genesis chapter 17. God says, "This is my covenant." which you shall keep. Now, the uh, Hebrew word for covenant is berit, B-E-R-I-T, berit. Now, in, it's, fun, it's interesting that in, uh, for, for many centuries, the vast majority, 80% of Jews in the world, lived in the area known as the Pale of Settlement, which is roughly Eastern Europe, Western Russia, Ukraine, Poland, uh, Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania, that area was the pale of settlement. So that is where in their anti-Semitic idiocy that the Europeans would push the Jews off to. And they, they developed a language that was a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of German, a little bit of this, a little bit of that called Yiddish. And with the influence of Yiddish, they had a tendency to change the final T on several words to a S. You've seen, if you've seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you've heard this. They'll say, good Shabbos, ending with an S. But the Hebrew word is Shabbat, ending with a T. 
But in, in Yiddish, they drop the T and it shifts to an S. Well, with the word berit, B-E-R-I-T, meaning covenant, they, there's a form of the word that is, uh, that describes or is the name for the circumcision ritual, and that's the bris, B-R-I-S. That final T has shifted to an S. But it's the word for covenant, because with the circumcision, the act of circumcision, the eight-day-old boy is now in a covenant relationship with God, has now been brought into that Abrahamic covenant. It's not the Mosaic covenant. The sign of the uh, of the uh, Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Circumcision was not a sign of the uh, Mosaic covenant. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. So getting circumcised isn't shifting to the Mosaic law. It's a recognition that that as a as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am in a eternal covenant with God, and that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's an eternal, permanent covenant that doesn't change. And so, for Jews today, whether they're saved or unsaved, because that wasn't ever part of it, their identification with Abraham is through. Um, through the Abrahamic covenant and and the bris and and circumcision and so this is unrelated to the issues of of law and legalism in in that sense. So the first required circumcision is Genesis 17. God says, "This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised." And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. I mean, circumcision was so important that when Moses was coming back to the land of Egypt from um, from Midian and has his son with him, that God is going to slay his son unless he circumcises his son. There's that whole episode with Zipporah where she, uh, where she gets angry and she circumcises, uh, Moses' son and throws the bloody foreskin at his feet. God is, this is important because God is teaching something through this symbolism. And a lot of times we don't understand the significance of a lot of this symbolism in the Old Testament because it's just not taught very clearly or understood very clearly. Now, the New Testament recognizes very clearly, Jesus did, that circumcision was Abrahamic and not Mosaic, John seven twenty two, Jesus said, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus recognizes that it's not a Mosaic institution, it's an Abrahamic institution, and that's also seen in Acts chapter 7, verse 8. Therefore, we see that circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is a permanent covenant, binding upon every descendant of... I mean, if we're going to walk around as we do, saying those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed, that that applies to everybody, whether they're believer or not, Christian or not, then 
this, this the sign of that same covenant is circumcision. Therefore, circumcision still applies. It's still mandatory under the Abrahamic covenant for every descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God didn't change that. It's still mandatory. It's not mandatory for salvation. It's not mandatory for the spiritual life. But it is mandatory under the principles of the Abrahamic covenant and their relationship to him. Now, the problem that occurred in terms of theology was that during the second, Second Temple Judaism, that's the technical term for the period of the Second Temple is first built by uh, Zerubbabel, finished in, in uh, 516 B.C., and then it's completely remodeled and overhauled by, uh, by Herod. And Herod just does this incredible job architecturally with the, uh, with the, with the Temple Mount. And what I'm going to do, I was show, shown a couple of videos, but they're taking up a little more time than I uh, than I wanted. What I've got some more videos that I've taken of the lectures from the guide that we had, which was the most incredible guide, Ph.D. in uh, in archaeology, worked on Temple Mount dig for a while. At one point, works on has worked on some other digs. Uh, Ian uh, uh, Ian Stern, and he gives some incredible explanations that I got good film of and, and fairly decent audio. Uh, if you have a home home system, you can probably crank the audio up a little better than what we're getting here. Uh, but I'm going to send the links out to those instead of taking a Bible class time, and you can watch them. This guy's the best I've heard yet on the architecture of what Herod did when he rebuilt rebuilt the temple. But that's primarily when we talk about second temple period, that's that whole development that occurs after the Jews come back into the land from from the exile up to the time of the destruction of the temple in, in AD 70. And during that time, circumcision and other religious uh, aspects of the Mosaic law began to be seen as being spiritually efficacious. In other words, you had to do them in order, and they were part of the mitzvah, the commandments of God, that you had to obey them in order to gain righteousness or tzedakah. And if you didn't do the mitzvah, then you didn't get the tzedakah, and if you didn't have enough tzedakah, you weren't going to go uh, to heaven when you died. And so it was a pure works system. This is the problem that's that's infected the former Pharisees who become Christians now in Acts 15, is that they're they're beginning to teach that you have to be circumcised in order to be in order to be saved. This problem is gra- gradually develops through Acts. Uh, that's the fifth point. In Acts 10.45, we start seeing uh, just a little foreshadowing here. After Peter, in Acts 10, went to, uh, went to Cornelius' household, and word gets out that Peter's eating with the Gentiles. He went to a Gentile's home. He's eating with the Gentiles. He's eating unclean food. He's eating with unclean people. Those of the circumcision who believe, so they're believers, but they're said to be of the circumcision. Now, that phrase, of the circumcision, is used in two ways, as we'll see. One way is those who were the legalists, and another way is just to refer to Jews as those of the circumcision. They're, they're circumcised, so they're of the circumcision. That's how it's used here, referring to the Jews. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, 
as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And then in 11.2, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. But we haven't ever seen that phrase used before, and it's sort of a foreshadowing of this problem that's developing. Now, the sixth point is that by 49 to 50 A.D., that's Acts 15 and Acts 16, by 49 to 50 A.D., this was had developed into a problem, as I've said, in Acts 15.1 and Acts 15.5. These Pharisee background uh, Christians are now saying, well, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. You've got to be circumcised in order to get the blessings of the covenant. So they're they're starting to merge faith plus works. Not faith alone, but faith plus works. Now let's look at this little timeline. This is a pretty instructive timeline. Paul writes Galatians somewhere in 49, probably in the summer of 49 to the to the fall of 49. He writes to the Galatians because he's heard that these Judaizers, that's the term that, that was developed, these Judaizers have come into to Galatia saying you've got to be circumcised, you've got to come under the Mosaic Law in order to be justified, that's chapters 1 and 2, or in order to uh, grow spiritually and be sanctified, that's chapters 3 through 6. That's Paul writes this. It is a hard letter. He gets so upset about those of the circumcision insisting you have to be circumcised in order to be saved and sanctified by chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I just wish they would cut the whole thing off, literally. He gets really irritated with them. This is the same Paul who turns around and says, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. Now, has, has Paul lost it, or is there something we're missing? That's We have to be honest with both sides of this. Then there's the Jerusalem conference where they're all in full agreement, no contradiction with Galatians. Circumcision is unnecessary for Gentiles, and it's unnecessary for salvation, it's unnecessary for sanctification. But then, just a couple of months later, Paul goes to Derby, Lystra, and he has Timothy circumcised. Now, here's another thing. Just flip over, we're in chapter 15, flip over about six chapters to Acts 21. Acts 21 is when Peter, or Paul, excuse me, when Paul has come to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he's taken a vow, he's shaved his head. What's that all about? Well, we'll get, cover that when we get there. But he's obviously following tradition. Now, he's not, he's not putting himself back under the law. Paul never fudges on this issue with the law at all. He's following respect for Jewish tradition and respect for he's going to go into the temple, which is still God's temple. He's going to go into the temple and he's going to, he's going to uh, go through the ritual cleansing because there's nothing wrong with that. He's not thinking that any of this makes him saved or sanctified. Not once is there any indication of that. He's just following the ritual. So he goes to Jerusalem, and in Acts uh, 21, verse 15, we read, After those days we packed, we, notice the we, Luke is with him. We packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain 
Mnason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That is, the Christians that were there received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. No conflict at all. When he had greeted them, he told in detail the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That's the third missionary journey. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Wow. How myriads, thousands upon thousands of Jews have believed. They are, they believe Jesus as Messiah. And they are all zealous for the law. That's their tradition. That's not being said in a bad way. He, they're not being accused of being Judaizers. They all believe they're all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you. What have they been informed? That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Did Paul do that? No. He's not saying throw out the Torah. He's also accused saying that they ought not to circumcise their children. Paul never taught that. He had Timothy circumcised, not because it was necessary for justification or for sanctification, but it was necessary on this social, cultural level, as we saw in the letter from Acts, in Acts 15. Uh, and that Paul was also being accused that not to walk according to their customs. See, we're talking about their social and cultural uh, issue. We're not talking about doing these things in order to be, uh, in order to be saved or in order to be justified. So there were these false charges brought against Paul some seven years later that he was telling them not to get circumcised. The message of Paul, as we'll see in Galatians, wasn't that you shouldn't get circumcised. It's that circumcision didn't do anything for you spiritually. Not don't get circumcised. So, point eight, Titus, at the same time, Timothy is, be, is circumcised so that he will not create a problem, dissension with the Jews that they're ministering to. Titus, who's a Gentile, was not compelled to be circumcised to Galatians 2, verse 3. But Timothy was. This is a sixth point. Now, look at some of the statements that Paul makes about circumcision. Uh, Galatians 5.2, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. When did he write Galatians 5.2? Maybe six months before he had Timothy circumcised. Is Paul crazy? Is he Meshuga? Huh? Has he gone nuts? No. Because what he's talking about in Galatians 5.2, if you think, if you become circumcised to be, in order to be saved or sanctified, then Christ isn't going to profit you anything. It's why you get circumcised, why you do the ritual, not the act of doing the ritual. Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. But see, that doesn't apply to Timothy, does it? So he's not making what appears to be a blanket universal statement here that don't get circumcised at all. 
He's talking about circumcision within the context of Galatians. Circumcision is a requirement for salvation or sanctification, not as just an act that has no spiritual significance whatsoever. Then in Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. See, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, he says, that doesn't matter. That's just a physical thing that had a, uh, a, a training aid, a, a, a visual aid type of, of significance. It doesn't have anything do, to do with spiritual reality. So whether you're circumcised or not circumcised doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is faith, the faith rest drill, working with love in the spiritual life makes it very clear, Galatians 5.12, I could wish that those who trouble you, that's the Judaizers, would even cut themselves off. It's much stricter in the Greek. It just, he would have, would have it cut off, is what it says in the Greek. In 1 Corinthians 7.18, which is written um, after his uh, second missionary journey, it says, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. He's just saying you don't, it doesn't do anything for you spiritually one way or the other. Circumcision is nothing, verse 19. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments because the law is no longer spiritually significant. He's talking about the commandments in the New, New Testament. And then he concludes in Galatians 6.15, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. What matters is that you are a new creature in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It's being in Christ that matters. Now, how do you get in Christ? We get in Christ when we trust Christ as Savior. It's the baptism by the Holy Spirit. I want to look at the three passages as we wrap up uh, tonight. I want to look at these three passages related to uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.26, for you are all, all of you. He's addressing this this body that's comprised of Jew primarily, some a lot of Gentiles. Well, I don't know if it was primarily Jewish, but a lot of Jews and Gentiles. And he says they are all believers. They are all sons of God. They are all members of the royal family of God. How can he say that? As many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's not water baptism. That is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're a new creature in Christ, and excuse me, a new identity. And then he explains this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. This applies in different areas. Paul is making a statement here that when you're in Christ... Jewishness or Gentileness isn't a factor. Is he saying that it's erased and you're no longer either a Jew or a Gentile? How do you know that? Oh, look at the next line. You're neither slave nor free. This is a great analogy to understand this. In one of the epistles in the New Testament, Paul writes to a slave owner named Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who escaped. 
And after he escaped, he eventually ends up in Rome where Paul meets him and he becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? Ah, you're a believer. You're free in Christ. I know your master, Philemon. He's a believer. You're free. No. Paul writes to Philemon to say, I know that, uh, that Onesimus has done you wrong and you have every right to punish him, but I implore you because he's now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you not only forgive him for having run away, but you let him go free. He's not existentially free. I mean, he's, he's not free as a, his slave status didn't change because he became a believer. He's still a slave. Philemon's still a master. If you're a woman and you get saved, you're still a woman. If you're a man and you get saved, you're still a man. If you're a Jew and you get saved, guess what? You're still a Jew. If you're a Gentile and you get saved, you're still a Gentile. Why, is, why do we have these, this, this statement here? It's not saying, as some have misconstrued, that Jewishness is now irrelevant. See, that really has its roots in the origins of replacement theology back in the late first century, early second century, when you have some of the church fathers beginning to say that because the Jews rejected Christ, they're no longer Jews. The real Israelites are Christians. They're the heirs to the promises. Jewishness is irrelevant. That is the path, that, that's the first step on the path to anti-Semitism. Jewishness is no longer relevant. This verse is not saying if you're a Jew in the church age, Jewishness is irrelevant. We wouldn't say, well, if you're a slave and you're a Christian, your slave status is irrelevant. Not absolutely. It's not relevant to your spiritual life in terms of justification or sanctification. But you're still a slave. It's still your, That's where you are in life. If you're a woman, it's not saying that you're not a woman anymore. You're still a woman. But it doesn't make a difference. What difference did it make? In the Old Testament, you had, you had, um, you had restrictions on diet in the Mosaic Law. And every now and then, I get irritated about this, every now and then you have people who come along and say, I got a new diet. Let's go back to the Mosaic Law. It's a great diet. Have you noticed that if that that the pigs are un, are terrible animals? They eat all kinds of garbage, and if you eat pork, you know that's just not good meat. And and if you eat all these crustaceans and you eat lobster or shrimp or oysters, that's not healthy because they're scavengers. They're just eating a lot of garbage off the floor of the ocean, and this is really bad. It's not healthy. We need to get back to the Mosaic Law because that's a healthy diet. Well, let me tell you something. In Acts chapter 10, when God lowered the tablecloth down for for, uh, Peter and said, uh, kill, notice the first command, kill and eat, God is teaching uh, Peter that what has been declared to be clean by God is now clean and not that the law doesn't really have an impact so he can go into the homes of the Gentiles later on. But the point is that that what made those animals now clean had nothing to do with learning anything about how to feed them better, how to cook them better, how to uh, raise them in a healthier environment. It had to do with a spiritual teaching point. They weren't they weren't absolutely unclean. 
They were only unclean because they were associated with death. They ate dead things. Where does death come from? Death comes from the Mosaic law. All that stuff that you end up, you're, you're unclean because of certain certain uh, extraneous factors are unclean. Those extraneous factors usually have something to do with the uh, with the curse, with the death of sin. When uh, women are in their monthly cycle, uh, that's a result of the curse uh, on Eve. So uh, that's a time when, uh, you know, if, if a man had uh, relations with his wife during that time, he would become spiritually unclean. Not because there's something inherently unclean about it, but because it was a reminder of something less than ideal in human experience because of the curse of sin. If, if you touched a dead body, there's nothing immoral or unethical about that. But the person's dead because of the curse, and so it's a, it, these are all teaching and training points. And the same thing was true. Uh, God was teaching that because Eve, w- Eve was deceived first, that there are certain limitations on the role of women down through history, enduring through the church age, because of what Eve did. It doesn't just affect the physical, biological monthly cycles. It is part of, of, of reality. Women are not to be the teachers of the Word of God. It's not my problem. It's not, I'm not misogynist. It's because God said, I'm trying to teach you something going all the way back to, to, uh, to the fall. Men have a leadership responsibility. That doesn't change just because you're in the body of Christ. These, these factors don't change. In the Old Testament, women did not have as close an access to God in the temple or the tabernacle as men did. It wasn't because God was down on women. Now, that's the response you get from the liberal feminist crowd. See, uh, you're just down on women. And unfortunately, in rabbinical theology, it became that. It got twisted. And in a lot of other cultures, the, the role distinction between men and women got, uh, got distorted. But women have a role in the family, and that's to be uh, childbearers and nurturers, to be mothers. And because of the influence of economics and the influence of the pagan system around us, we're raising our female children to be something, to be successful in business, to be successful in education. But God says their primary role is to be successful in the home. That's what they need to be trained for. And we go, oh, that's terrible. That's, that's, that's sexist. That, that, that's fitting into all of these, uh, all these caricatures of women. How terrible. No, but that's what God says. Men, men have a role in responsibility. There are distinct roles and responsibilities here. And that's what's being emphasized. And in relationship to the, and in terms of the relationship with God in the Old Testament, if you were a slave, you didn't have much access to God either. If you, if you were not a free person, you could not go into the temple. See, these were all, all had to do with access to God. Now, once Christ paid the penalty for sin, not all these distinctions went away, but many of them did. So that in Christ, and that's what we're talking about here, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, we're all one in Christ. Distinctions in, for spirituality uh, do not continue. 
There aren't distinctions. Men and women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, have the same access. But in the Old Testament, under the law, they had a different access. You see the same thing in Colossians 3.10. We've put on the new man, a regeneration, who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. In Colossians, Paul really piles it up there. These distinctions are irrelevant in Christ and in terms of your personal relationship to God in terms of prayer, living your spiritual life. Uh, same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, which, uh, 12, 13. We're all one body. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So that's focusing on that that unity. That's what's important. So what I've done tonight is I've tried to show you that that when the law ended, the law no longer has a role in terms of justification or sanctification. But that doesn't mean you, you just sweep it out under the rug and it no longer has any relevancy. You can respect the law. You can respect the Old Testament. In the in the early church, what happened is by the end of the second century, they weren't even reading the Old Testament anymore because anything having to do with Jews was wrong. And this was the dominant thinking up into the early part of the Reformation. In fact, in the early part, uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, when people like um, uh, Richard Kett who wrote the first commentary to affirm the restoration of the Jews, he was called a Judaizer and burned at the stake. This was in England in about 1597. And he's burned at the stake because he's valuing the Jewish people. At that time, Jews had been prohibited from living in England for uh, about 300 years. And uh, it wasn't for another 50 years that they were allowed back in, at least legally. So the, the, what they did was they threw out the Old Testament. That's why they didn't understand the New Testament. Is They didn't have the Old Testament at all. So there's a value to those things culturally, socially, ethnically, and it's not wrong to respect those things from that background. It's just that you don't come along and say it's going to make you a better Christian it's going to get you justification, or it's going to make you more spiritual. But it's not in and of itself wrong as long as you keep it in the right place. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to come to a better, clearer understanding of the role of the law, uh, the role of circumcision within this uh, central debate that manifests itself in different ways today, but it still relates to adding something to uh, to faith in order for salvation. There are many good things to do, but they become wrong if we think they're going to uh, give us uh, special brownie points or blessing from you. It, we're saved and sanctified by faith alone, and it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who sanctifies us, and it's our faith alone in Christ alone that gives us salvation. We pray that we might have a greater appreciation for grace as a result of these studies, in Christ's name, amen.